Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Hey, Susanna Greer. How's it going? Hello, Joe Cotter. I'm doing great. So HPV vaccines are the name today, Susanna. Have you, um, so you got a kid, you've got a son in middle school. I've got a daughter in middle school. Did your boy get vaccinated already for the HPV vaccine? He has been. We vaccinated our son early as as instructed. And so you're having conversations around uh, sexually transmitted disease with a 10-year-old. So yeah, right. what about yeah. you? Yeah, same here. Uh, daughters, I, I don't remember the exact age that she got it. It was in the recommended age range, 9 to 12. It's good to have it out of the way. I wish I'd been able to get the vaccine. So, so let's back up. We're talking about HPV vaccines because we spoke with Dr. Jenny Grandis and a high school student named Adrian Muir, who was an intern in her lab. So Dr. Jenny Grandis, she is just a renowned expert in this space. She is the Robert K. Werb Distinguished Professor in Head and Neck Cancer Research in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of California, San Francisco. She was named an American Cancer Society Clinical Research Professor for her seminal contributions to the field. And our other guest was Adrian Muir. She's a senior at Tamil Pei High School out in California. So Susanna, let, let's kind of set the stage a little bit just by talking about HPV. It's this, to say it's a common virus is an understatement. Uh, Dr. Grandis had some startling statistics to share about that. And it causes six types of cancer that are 100% preventable. There's a vaccine that can prevent it. It's a safe vaccine effective vaccine. It's long-lasting, and it works best when given to boys and girls between the ages of 9 and 12. Um, but there's some things that give people pause about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I think our listeners will be pretty blown away, first of all, by the statistics um, around the prevalence of HPV infection in the United States. And also, that we're having a conversation about head and neck cancer and specifically HPV-associated head and neck cancers, which are primarily cancers of the throat. And one of the things that Dr. Granda shares with us is that these HPV-associated cancers are hard to detect they are often detected quite late in the disease, and the treatments that are associated are rough. So it's chemotherapy, it's radiation, it's surgical interventions, and while we are driving towards better treatments and targeted treatments and lots of clinical trials, right now, the lucky folks, so those survivors of HPV-associated neck cancers have, for the rest of their lives, a really challenging time with side effects. And so Jenny's going to share some of those. And then the thing that she and Adrian bring home is that all of this, 100% of this is preventable with the vaccine. And it is so interesting to me that we associate HPV with cervical cancer in girls. And the crux of this conversation is that there are more HPV-associated head and neck cancers 
in men than there are cervical cancers in women. And we've got to get kids vaccinated and that's gonna take some tough conversations. So we're gonna learn maybe how to have them, why to have them, when to have them. And most of all that we just, we've gotta do a little bit better job as parents. So um, this is a fascinating conversation. Good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon, Adrian. How are the two of you? Oh, just fine. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. All right. Well, it sounds like you guys are ready to go, so we're going to dive in. Jenny, I'm going to I'm going to start with you. Let's help our audience understand what it is that we're talking about today. So you your expertise is in head and neck cancer, both treatment of these cancers and research. And we're going to be talking about the human papillomavirus today, or HPV. So can you help us to understand how are head and neck cancers associated with infection by the human papillomavirus? So let's, let's start with that. How, how are HPV associated with head and neck cancer? Yeah, really good question. Um, you know, when I was growing up and learning how to be an ear, nose, and throat doctor, Head and neck cancers were commonly caused by smoking, sometimes smoking in combination with uh, drinking, you know, drinking alcohol. But we've seen a real revolution in the cause of head and neck cancer over the past 20 years, I'd say. And now increasingly, we see head and neck cancers primarily in the back of the throat, in the region of our tonsils or the way back part of the tongue called the base of the tongue. And increasingly, to the tune of about 80% of these cancers are caused by infection with the human papillomavirus or HPV. So it's really been a dramatic revolution in a certain kind of cancer. And this is really true, certainly in the United States and North America, but probably worldwide as well, where the data are being kept. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. I, what an amazing change in our understanding of a disease just over a fairly short period of time. Can you tell us just a little bit about why is that? Is this a change in our under, is it a change in the way these cancers are caused? Is it a change in our understanding of them and the techniques we use? I mean, that's a huge question, but, but why? What, why this, this huge change in our understanding? Yeah, really good question. I would say, Susanna, that we don't know completely. And it probably has to do with the prevalence, that is how common HPV infection is. So today, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the world. And my guess is that 30 years ago, that simply wasn't true. There was just a different level of uh, um, prevalence, if you will, of HPV in the world and in the community. So there are at any one time about 79 million people in the U.S. that have an active HPV infection. And there are 14 million new cases of HPV infection every year. Now, in most cases, the HPV is cleared. It goes away. But in a small percentage of cases, a subset, and we don't really know how big, the HPV persists. 
And the most common part of the body that we're used to thinking about HPV persistence is in the uterine cervix. So cervical cancer has long been associated with HPV and of course all of the prevention and diagnostic efforts focused on cervical cancer have really now re been refocused on HPV. But what we learned is another reservoir for HPV is in the back of the throat and hence HPV associated head and neck cancer. Gracious, those statistics are, ah, uh. They're just so mind-boggling because the, the numbers that you threw out, 79 million people who are HPV positive and 14 million new cases per year. And as you said, just to, to level set, most of the time those cases are cleared, but, but when they're not, they can persist. The HPV, HPV rather infection can persist and drive these different situations where we know there is an elevated risk for cancer. And you're exactly right. We're all very familiar with the elevated risk for cervical cancer, but understanding that the throat can serve as, you, you called it a reservoir, so a place for HPV to, to hang out and, and cause all of the inflammation and infection that, that we associate with um, head and neck cancer that's just startling and will impact a a lot of folks. So I think one of the things that we need to understand is a little bit more about head and neck cancer itself. Um, help us understand, are these, are these cancers that are super easy to treat? Are they easy to find? Help us level set with us about head and neck cancer. Sure, happy to. Well, focus on HPV, head and neck cancer in particular. So remember I said the back of the throat. And that means it's hard to detect. If you could look in the mirror and stick out your tongue or go to a dentist, those are cancers in the oral cavity and they tend to be easier to find because it's easier to examine that part of the body. But HPV positive head and neck cancers are in the way back of the throat, that is at the bottom of the tongue, which is hard to see, or in the tonsil, and sometimes it's deep inside the tonsil. It may not even be on the surface. So that's why these tend to be more difficult to find. And if someone doesn't have pain or difficulty swallowing, we may not make the diagnosis of an HPV-associated head and neck cancer until it is spread to the lymph nodes in the neck and someone comes in with a neck mass. So sadly, they are more difficult to detect. Okay, so we're talking about a group of cancers, these HPV-positive head and neck cancers that are harder to see, may result in a delayed diagnosis, and may, so a patient may come in who is quite symptomatic. So if, if that's the case, then how do you treat these cancers? Good question. Well, so far, here's what we know. So the good news about HPV-positive head and neck cancer is if the person doesn't smoke or have a history of smoking, the prognosis tends to be better. But we still treat them the same way, meaning we give them a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, which can be highly effective at getting rid of the cancer, but the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation are significant and quite long-lasting, changes in swallowing, changes in taste, uh, changes in appearance, 
Alternatively, these cancers at specialized um, um, uh, centers can be treated with transoral robotic surgery. Uh, that has a different kind of side effect or morbidity following it. And the clinical trials so far are testing whether or not we can give less radiation and or lower concentrations of chemotherapy and still get an improved outcome. So we use the same treatment for HPV positive cancers as we do for HPV negative cancers. And I think one of the challenges we have in cancer research is figuring out if there are HPV specific therapies that have low morbidity and can result in cure, but we are not there yet. Oh, gracious. All right. So if I can lay out the timeline of what you shared with us, we we have an understanding that in the United States, there are a large number of individuals who are HPV positive. Of these individuals, many will clear that infection, but those who don't will potentially have a reservoir of HPV infection in, in a part of the throat that is difficult to see. They may develop a cancerous or cancerous lesions that are hard to detect and may be undetected until they are large. You mentioned a, a mass in their neck. So when they do come in for treatment and are seen, while the prognosis um, is better if this is not associated with other confounding risk factors like smoking, um, the treatments are still tough. You mentioned chemo and radiation and other treatment strategies which have significant side effects. Um, and you also mentioned a, a real, real need for new treatments. So if I understood all of that and got it right, it sounds like to me the best thing would be to prevent that original <laughs> statement, which is HPV infection in the first place. Oh my God, Suzanne, I could not agree with you more. And what is remarkable is that this disease is 100% preventable. And that is an amazing thing. And because we aren't vaccinating everybody who should be vaccinated, the number of HPV positive throat cancers continues to rise at a fairly alarming rate. And in fact, the number of HPV positive throat cancers in men surpassed the number of HPV associated cervical cancers in women a couple of years ago, and the curves continue to diverge. But you're absolutely right. Prevention is the answer and prevention is vaccination. It's that simple. Oh, all right. Well, I have one more question and then I'm so excited to talk to Adrienne as well and to get her perspective. Um, I'd really, Jenny, to love your to know your thoughts on what happened in the, in June in the summer of 2020, and that was that the Food and Drug Administration did exactly what what you wanted. They expanded the use or indication of the HPV vaccine uh, to head and neck cancers um, that were caused by HPV infection. So, tell us a little bit about that. What was that like for you? And tell us maybe can you share some of the impact? Sure, happy to. I don't think we know the impact yet. It's still too soon. But one of the points that is very important to understand is that the vaccine, as best we can tell, only works if it's administered before exposure. And what this means is before sexual activity. 
And that's been the tricky part in the context of the conversations between parents and children and pediatricians and parents. So what happened in uh, 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 the, the FDA recently said, you know, the vaccine that's approved in the United States is targeted against nine um, subtypes of HPV. And it is possible that even if a person misses the vaccination as a child or an adolescent, even after they become sexually active, it is possible that they have not been exposed to at least one of these nine subtypes. So after the age of 26, it's really shared decision-making between the patient and the physician about whether or not there is value to vaccination. So I think the good news, Susanna, is that we recognize that there is still the possibility of prevention. However, I would say that the best chance of prevention is administering the vaccine uh, to people uh, ages 9 to 12. Uh, and that is the challenging part uh, culturally and socially that I think Adrian has really got a great handle on. And, extending, and increasing the vaccination age doesn't get around that really important obstacle. Oh, fantastic. What an important word. So, Adrian, let's Let's dive in there. So we know that that Jenny is a, an amazing researcher and runs a fabulous research lab. And the reason you're on the podcast today is because you participated in research as a high school student, which is fantastic, in Jenny's lab. And because of your experience, developed expertise and then some opinions and helpful literature around the importance of HPV vaccination and how to have some hard conversations. But before we talk about all that, I, our listeners are do not usually have the experience of talking to a high school student who was able to join this incredible research lab. So what was that like? What was that like to walk in on the first day? And then how did things go? Yeah, so when I began my research with Dr. Grandis, the stay-at-home orders in California were under full force. So this meant that everything was really to be done online, and we used the platform Zoom. Um, nonetheless, it was really amazing to observe the team camaraderie during weekly lab meetings and have these really intellectual conversations with experts in the field, even if it was over Zoom. So throughout my internship, I completed a lot of individual work. I read um, published medical literature about the HPV infection and vaccine, etc. And then I would debrief with Dr. Grandis, which really helped me process everything I was learning. And overall, it just felt very productive to be conducting scientific research with a team during what felt like such an unproductive and stagnant time during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine how just kind of cool that was to be able to see people, even though you're right, you weren't in person, but you were still interacting with these leading scientists and clinicians and starting to understand their perspective and learning more and more about HPV and its impact on head and neck cancer. So I, I think it would be really interesting for our audience to know maybe what you thought about this topic, HPV vaccination, prior to your internship, and did your internship change your mind, or 
alter your perspectives? Absolutely. So before I began my research um, with Jenny, I generally understood that vaccines were important, vaccines were good, we needed to get vaccinated, but I didn't really understand why it was so important. And I didn't understand that by vaccinating, we can really save lives. Um, As um, Dr. Grannis was talking about earlier, the treatment for head and neck cancer it still leaves patients with lifelong consequences. You know, even these quote unquote lucky survivors have to live with disfigured faces, the inability to chew and swallow along with constant pain. So this made me realize just how crucial it is that we advocate for widespread HPV vaccination as a society. And, you know, I learned that 50% of adolescents in America and in my own county haven't been vaccinated. And, you know, we can eliminate this entire subset of cancer if we just get people vaccinated. And my experience in the lab really um, pushed me to use my voice and start advocating for this vaccine because it is so important and it really can make a difference. You know, I've, I've read those statistics and they... They're, they're really shocking. Both you and you, Adrian and Jenny, have said that this, this is a vaccine-preventable cancer, HPV-associated head and neck cancers. The outcomes, as you, you both relayed, of even individuals who have a positive experience and survive HPV-associated head and neck cancer, they are left with lifelong challenges. Um, Jenny, I'd love... <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on those statistics that Adrian shared that less than 50% of age-appropriate adolescents have been vaccinated for HPV in the U.S. Yeah, it's mind-boggling, Suzanne, and that's taking into account that we're getting better vaccinating girls, but we're really far behind in vaccinating boys. And one of the things that I, I, I didn't probably underscore enough is that for reasons we don't understand, head and neck cancer is still largely a cancer of men. And so even though women get HPV positive throat cancer, the vast majority of people get HPV positive throat cancers are men. And so when parents are making decisions to vaccinate or not their boys and their girls, I don't think that they truly understand the consequences of the decisions. And it's it's complicated, Susanna. I mean, you know, think about this. Pediatricians are used to talking about vaccination against diseases that they take care of. And, and they have experience with measles, with, with mumps, with, you know, rubella, with chicken pox, et cetera. They don't have any experience with an HPV-related cancer. Nobody gets these cancers until they're adults. So already it's a completely new paradigm to talk about vaccination of children for a disease that they don't have much experience with. And then, as we are seeing now potentially in a, in a, in a life-threatening way, there's a lot of people who are suspicious about vaccines whether it's the old argument about autism or a new argument about you know, nefarious purposes for uh, giving people vaccines. But I think that at the end of the day, the biggest challenge is parents making decisions for children. It's not about them getting vaccinated. It's about agreeing to vaccinate their children. 
I suspect almost all pediatricians offer the vaccine, but I also suspect there's not a whole lot of pushback when the parent politely declines. Uh, you're, you're so right. I think that none of us like to think about our children having any kind of challenge or disease, but, but you're right. It's, it's so much easier to think about. I certainly want to prevent measles. I certainly want to pre- prevent chicken pox. It's really hard to wrap your mind around thinking, I really want to prevent cancer in the throat and I really want to prevent cervical cancer. So Adrian, this is, this is tough. And one of the things that I'd love to hear from you is around kind of the complexities of specific, I think the, the challenges associated with HPV vaccination, which you two have so elegantly shared, there are really, I, I think probably three, the, the suspicion around vaccines, period, all vaccines, mistrust of the medical community, and then the third, which is specific to HPV, and that brings in the fact that it's a sexually transmitted disease. And it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that I need to get in front of sexual activity that my child will participate in, and that needs to happen between the ages of 9 and 12. So none of this is easy. So Adrian, can you help us? How, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how parents and teens can talk about HPV vaccination. And then I know that you yourself have uh, produced a resource. So I, I'd love to, we'll certainly link to that in the podcast, but also if there are other resources that are available to help, please share. Of course. So as a teenager, I completely understand how awkward it can be to talk about HPV infection with an adult and HPV vaccination. I'm sure as a parent, it's super hard to imagine your child having sex, nonetheless getting a sexually transmitted disease. And as a result, it might be easier to just kind of block out the possibility of HPV-related cancer and not have the conversation. But I can't stress enough how important it is that we do have these difficult conversations. Um, Unfortunately, there is no magic formula to discussing HPV and the vaccine. So I say, have the conversation and let it be awkward. If anything, an awkward conversation is just going to be more memorable for the child. But all jokes aside, it's important that Um, We communicate how by getting this vaccine, you reduce the risk of your child being vulnerable to HPV infection and cancer. And it's really crucial that adults just set aside their discomfort and, you know, have an honest conversation with your kid. As for resources, um, there are a ton of different websites that have very succinct infographics and essays about HPV vaccination. I know that um, the American Cancer Society and the CDC Disease Control and Prevention um, website have some really great resources that are easy to understand and very thoughtfully communicate um, the importance of the vaccine. One of the stories I was thinking about, Adrienne, is you were describing the hard conversations. I have a daughter who's now a medical student and she wants to be a pediatrician. But when she was nine years old, she was afraid of needles. And we were going to the pediatrician office for her to get her first HPV vaccine. And she was trying to negotiate her way out of the vaccine. 
And she said to me, why do I need to get this now? And I gave her the straight answer. And she said, I kid you not. So I have to get it now before I have sex. I'm like, right. She said, what if we make a deal? If I agree never to have sex, I don't have to get the vaccine. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, you know, part of me wants to take this deal, but that would be completely unfair to you as a human being. So sorry, but the answer is no. <laughs> she still laughs today as we recall that anecdote. But I guess the other story that comes back to me on a regular basis is one of my closest friends in life. Uh, he was a fellow art history major in college. We wrote our theses side by side. He's now a chair of art history at a premier university in this country. About six years ago, uh, he developed HPV positive uh, throat cancer and it presented with a lump in the neck like many do. And he nearly died from the treatment. They first tried to treat him uh, surgically. He had multiple post-operative bleeds. It was really uh, harrowing. And then he ended up needing full course uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And he's 30 pounds lighter now than he was before and he wasn't overweight before. And his difficulty with swallowing just gets worse over the years because of the side effects of radiation or fibrosis, which happens increasingly with time. And as I spend time with my friend and he has to drink a, a glass of water after every bite of food and think very carefully about how he's going to get his nutrition because he doesn't want to have a, a gastrostomy tube placed in, I realize the cost of this cancer is not just the scary word cancer, but it's really the lifelong you know, morbidity and, and change in, in lifestyle because of the treatment. So that's really what keeps me going. Thank you, Jenny. Those were wonderful anecdotes to share on opposite sides of the spectrum. The first is that we all have to have these hard conversations and we can lighten them by understanding that this is reality and um, we want our children to have the very, very best lives that they can. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, we do not want our children to suffer. And this is one thing that we can do. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as I prepared some questions to talk to the two of you is that these conversations aren't that different in a way than being a mentor, being a scientist like Jenny and having a young person in your lab like you, Adrian, because honestly, it can be a hot mess, right? It can be hard to bring a young person in your lab because they don't, they don't know anything and the lab is full of these scientists and clinicians who were working hard and moving at a fast pace, but that is what science is all about, is sharing knowledge, passing it down, listening, having hard conversations, being a good mentor, being a good mentee. So you two seem to really have a, a lovely relationship, and I, I'd love to hear maybe something from each of you. Jenny, we'll start with you about what you took from the experience of being a mentor for Adrian. Oh, sure. I'm happy to. So, you know, I've, I've I had the pleasure of mentoring, oh, probably hundreds of uh, students in the lab over the years, uh, as young as Adrian. Adrian's not the first high school student, but I never mentored a high school student during a pandemic, which prohibited them from actually meeting anybody in person. <laughs> 
And I was skeptical. I wasn't sure that this was going to be a valuable experience for Adrian. But what I learned is that it is the diversity of our research group that brings new knowledge and new ways of communicating knowledge. And uh, we have a wonderful medical student who has been part of the group almost since the day he arrived here at UCSF. And, um, you know, he was interested and willing to um, amplify, you know, the teaching points with Adrian. So we uh, created this research group and his name is Rex Lee and Rex and Adrian and my research partner, Dan Johnson and I met on a regular basis and then uh, Rex and Adrian went back and forth and there were uh, assignments and she did reading and he did some teaching and you know medicine and science is really about teaching the student to be a teacher and I am pleased that at the end of the summer I felt like it wasn't a waste of Adrian's time she got something out of it Rex, uh, the medical student, learned how to be a teacher. And we learned, particularly in the context of HPV head and neck cancer, that Adrian was the only person in the lab who had the authority to speak to us about why and why not um, her community of peers was having access to the vaccine or not. And that was really important to listen to. I love that. I love that you all learned from each other. Um, that that's just a lovely take on that relationship. So, Adrian, what what have you taken from this experience? Well, as a 17-year-old, I just felt remarkably lucky to have real experts in the field, Dr. Grandis and Dr. Johnson, really take me under their wing and bear with me because I was starting from, you know, having a very limited knowledge about head and neck cancer. But Dr. Grandis was always really patient with me and she never made me feel embarrassed to be there or like I was out of place in such a high functioning environment. And I really appreciated that. I definitely had a lot to learn from the team. But um, toward the end of the internship, I actually produced an op-ed on vaccines. Um, HPV is a threat to your children. Vaccines are not. And this was a really incredible experience because Dr. Grandis and Dr. Johnson really coached me through writing a publishable piece of medical literature. And while I knew the process would require a few you know, back and forth emails and refinements, I learned that, you know, when you're writing um, a piece of literature, especially when, you know, science is involved, mine was had a lot to do with um, head and neck cancer and the HPV vaccine, it really needs to be refined. And I went through like a 10 email process where we were just going back and forth, um, editing it, you know, there were some minor edits, there were some entire paragraphs that needed to be changed. And this just taught me about the process of creating a publishable piece of writing. And I know, you know, that's an experience that will definitely take me a long way um, in college and in all of my future writing endeavors. And I really appreciated that. All right, Jenny, I, I have to just circle back to you because you are such an incredible and influential scientist and clinician. You're a, an ACS research professor, as Joe mentioned in his introduction, and you have just been and continue to be an invaluable part of the American Cancer Society community, and including taking time to mentor gracious hundreds of, of students who are 
lucky as Adrian. And Adrian, I have to say, I'm sure Jenny and her lab feel just as lucky to have interacted with you as you do with them. So Jenny, we are really grateful for you and all you do for cancer patients. Um, I'd love to know if there's a way the American Cancer Society has impacted your research. Oh my goodness. So thank you so much for that question, Susanna. Really in two remarkable ways. I've been thinking about this over time. You know, the, the obvious way, and this is what occurred to me early on, is that um, being named an ACS professor comes with resources. And the miracle about these resources is that they are somewhat discretionary. It's not like the typical grant where you propose an experiment and you do a budget for the experiment and then the grant supports that experiment. It's far more uh, flexible um, and you could, and so it had allowed me really over the course of the 10 years that I had the funding to take risks that I wouldn't have taken, to go into new areas that I might not have been an expert in, but I could afford to acquire the expertise. And it's essentially the equivalent of an endowment. And the value of that endowment in real dollars can't be underestimated. But what I didn't appreciate at the time, but I do now, Susanna, is it also makes you part of a really special group of people. And being named an ACS professor really validated for me and I think for my reputation in the cancer research community that I counted, that I mattered. And that is so important for everybody, but it's particularly important as a woman in academic medicine. We still have a long way to go before there are equal opportunities and uh, a lack of inequity uh, throughout our culture, including in academic medicine. So those two things for the ACS professorship really have been invaluable to me. Good grief. That gives me chills to hear somebody like Jenny Granda say that you, you still need to, and it feels good to know that you count and it matters. Um, Adrian, I think I'm going to give you the honor of the last question because I, what I heard in Jenny's answer was that this incredible, absolutely incredible scientist, that she is a risk taker, she's moving into new areas, you could hear the excitement in her voice, I mean, she is known all over the world as just being this incredible, impactful scientist in head and neck cancers and has done so much, but, and there's a big but, women still, as we pursue careers in science and make all of these wonderful, wonderful impacts, as Jenny said, there are real hurdles that remain. So you've already crossed one of those hurdles. You put your toe in. I'd love for you to take a moment to share advice for other women who are in high school, who are interested in a research career. What should they do and should they do it? Well, should they do it? The answer is definitely Yes, it's my belief that we, you know, as women need to set the precedent that we want future generations to have. So while it can be discouraging to sign up for a class that maybe is primarily men, um, a STEM class, it's important that we do it anyways, because I, I mean, I want to create an environment in the future where, you know, there's just as many girls and boys learning about um, 
like physics and chemistry in high school. So I'd say the first step for high schoolers who are interested in scientific career paths would be to sign up for those classes. Any extra room you have in your schedule, take the honors chemistry class, etc. I also think it's really important that we as women advocate for ourselves and seek our own resources. We can't expect anybody else to advocate for us and we need to, um, you know, have enough confidence in ourselves to really take that first step, sign up for that class, seek out that resource. Um, it's my belief that the future is female and to any young girls listening, I just want you to know that you deserve to be in that classroom just as much as anyone else. And I highly encourage you to take a chance and sign up for that class. Well, Adrian, Jenny, I, I 100% think the future is um, looking really good with the two of you in it. You are both amazing scientists and we're lucky to have you in the ACS community. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us and I um, look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.